I'm Catherine Mazone here on behalf of Mojo Streaming, and I'm very proud and honored to welcome our guest, Eduardo Gonzalez. Uh, he has been a longtime conservationist, and he is heading a coalition now to ban trophy hunting, the importation. You want to get rid of all of it, don't you, Eduardo? I think eventually we have to see an end to this. I mean, it's one of those things that somehow fallen through the cracks of history. We've managed to abolish you know, a number of major social evils over time, whether it's apartheid or slavery. or um, And also we've got rid of a lot of cruel animal blood sports, you know, bear baiting, dog fighting, cock fighting, all of these things were once seen as normal. And we realized as we evolved as a society uh, that no, these things were barbaric and they belonged firmly in the past. And that's where I think trophy hunting belongs. And I think that, uh, you know, in 50 years time, people will look back at this era and think, my goodness, how on earth did we allow this to persist so long? And of course, in Africa, there is no tradition of trophy hunting. This right. is something that's completely alien to local culture. In fact, most people in Africa are, are, are bewildered and even angered by it. Uh, because uh, you know there's so many inconsistencies and, and contradictions and hypocrisy i mean you know you've got people who sometimes in, in situations of great hunger and yet you know they're not allowed to kill local wildlife upon you know pain of imprisonment or so on and yet a wealthy white westerner can fly in and kill the exact same animal for nothing more than fun so they can't even kill it for food even in times of desperation. And yet we white people can go there and kill those animals for fun. And of course this breeds resentment. It also makes it very much harder to tackle problems like poaching and wildlife trafficking, because essentially trophy hunting is the same. <laughs> you know, these are animals that are all gonna get killed for one reason or another. They are killed for their horns or their tusks, either to sell onto the black markets in Asia or to adorn the living room of a rich white wealthy hunter but the end result is the same the animals killed and the tusks the horns or whatever have been taken away so it is absolutely indistinguishable and it and because of that hypocrisy it just makes it so much harder to really tackle problems like poaching and wildlife trafficking people say well hang on a second you're telling me i can't do this and yet this guy can just fly in and he can do this with total impunity i don't get it white people have been doing that for a long time going in and doing whatever they want. Um, I think there's been a real well, this shift. Is a continue, I mean, that's a really strong point because th this is a continuation of values and structures, power structures that have largely been done away with. It is a, con a continuation of colonialism. It's a perpetuation and an entrenchment of those old elitist structures whereby you know, it's the rich whites that own the land. You know, because when you go to Africa, let's say, to go and shoot a lion or a, or a giraffe or an elephant or whatever, the company that you will book your holiday through and go on your trophy hunting holiday with is white owned. The people who own the land where the hunting goes on, they're whites as well. And so even though many countries in Africa, you know, they now know democracy, they've now got majority black rule and so on, but actually those privileged whites who controlled everything and who were the settlers of the colonialists, they're still calling the shots quite literally. And, and so that's why this is, you know, a, a so-called sport that is wrong in so many dimensions, not just because of the cruelty, not just because of the damage to conservation, but also, you know, how it fragments communities, how it perpetuates these 
in inequalities and social injustice in these countries. Why then do we hear that there are instances in which um, these governments benefit? There are villages that get the meat um, and, and it uh, addresses local issues of problem lions or problem animals that have been killing villagers or destroying crops. If it doesn't benefit, where do we get this information? Where is it coming from? There are, of course, officials who benefit directly in Africa from trophy hunting. But conservation doesn't benefit, local communities don't benefit. And I know this because I've spoken to a lot of community leaders, to local members of parliament, to local councillors, and they keep saying, where are these so-called benefits? <laughs> There's nothing, literally, you know, we ask, we actually go to the authorities and say, look, you know, you say that you're getting money for building new buildings or repairing a roof or whatever it is. Well, we need a roof repaired. Can we have some money? And this one, there's no money. There is never, you know, they all talk about it actually as money that goes into a black hole. In other words, it disappears into the central government and never makes its way back into local communities or, um, and certainly doesn't go into conservation. And it wouldn't be able to fund conservation anyway for reasons I, I can explain. I'm just going to take up a couple of the specifics that you mentioned there. For example, about distribution of elephant meat. Now, I've spoken to a lot of people uh, in Africa and they say one of their pet hates is when these white colonial guys turn up at their village graciously donating buckets of elephant meat. They hate it because of the optics of it. You know, this really patrician, you know, here's the white hero coming in to feed the local Africans, please form an orderly queue. But also they just hate elephant meat. It's horrible. They have to, they say they have to boil it at least seven times before it's remotely edible. And it's disgusting, you know, it's terrible. And as for, you know, problem animals or wildlife management, culling and all the rest of it, look, there's one thing that is wildlife management. There's another thing which is killing animals for fun. If you need to control wildlife populations, you bring in an expert marksman who can, as humanely as possible, dispatch an animal that is or, you know, presenting some kind of threat or problem. You do not, you know, go onto the open market and say, hey, look, trophy hunters, come and shoot one of these animals. They're called problem animals. And yeah, you just take it out because there's lots of reasons why this is really bad. Firstly, Trophy hunters, by and large, are not expert marksmen. They are terrible shots. They're amateurs. And they usually shoot from a long way away because they don't want to get into harm's way. And, and, and they try to avoid hitting the animal, you know, getting a brain shot because that then doesn't make the trophy look very good. What they try to do is to aim for what they call a heart-lung shot through the shoulder. If you're standing 200 yards away, you've got to count on A, that shooter being a real and being like a a, a marine sniper <laughs> you you got to count on the animal not moving you've got to count on there being no wind and of course what happens is that in the majority of cases and there have been a lot of studies now which show this in the majority of cases animals do not die quick deaths when they're shot by trophy hunters they die slow and painful deaths and this has been shown everywhere, including by a number of states, actually, in the US, where they've done uh, the, fed, uh, the the local state authorities have been doing research into how long it takes for a trophy animal to actually die after it's been shot by a trophy hunter. And in many cases, it's, it's very, very slow, very painful. The hunters lose the animal, 
you know, and this, of course, was what happened in the case of Cecil, the lion, who we're just about to celebrate yet another anniversary of the killing of this poor animal by that uh, Minnesota dentist, Walter Palmer. You know, he was shot in the evening by Walter Palmer with a bow and arrow. Why? Because Walter Palmer wanted to get one of these industry prizes for shooting big game with a bow and arrow. So they have all of these different prizes which incentivize hunters to shoot lots of animals. So, for example, there's one that Safari Club International is called the Hunting Achievement Award. To get it at the top level, you have to shoot animals from at least 125 different species. So not even 125 animals, animals from 125 different species. And they've all got to be big enough to register for the records book. So, of course, they're also encouraging hunters to shoot the biggest animals, which then depletes the gene pool and causes really, really serious problems. In, in some ways, it's an even greater problem than the numbers, the large numbers of animals that trophy hunters are shooting. It's the fact they're wiping out all of the best animals. They're taking all of those good genes out of the gene pool, which means it's going to be very difficult for those species to be able to survive, adapt you know, to rapid environmental change. And of course, climate change is accelerating. And we're now seeing you know, greater threats from diseases to lions and, and droughts to elephants and so on. So they're creating a problem. And of course, they actually create problem animals because, let's take the example of elephants. If a trophy hunter takes out a problem elephant, let's say a matriarch, then that actually causes real trauma in the rest of the herd. I mean, there's been cases, I mean, they, scientists equate it to PTSD. Or if you take out the male bull, the biggest male bull, then the herd is left without a, a father figure. And the behavior of the young bulls is quite similar to that of juvenile delinquents who don't grow up with a father figure in the family. So they then go on and do start displaying antisocial behavior. They become more aggressive or they're more likely to go into crops. And of course, if you're then taking out, um, let's say, a, a lion like, like Cecil, then it, of course, that pride is then vulnerable to other predators. It's then vulnerable to other males coming into the area. So there's going to be the infanticide that takes place as that new male tries to uh, you know, own, if you like, take ownership of that new product. So, you know, there's an exponential effect of shooting a single animal. And there's been uh, studies in Hoangi National Park in Zimbabwe, where Cecil was shot. And they showed how, for example, in the killing of one of Cecil's relatives, again, a, a, a male, then a couple of females, lionesses from that pride, they then went off because they were scared off and they were looking for food. They ended up on a farm they killed a donkey on that farm. So therefore they became labeled as problem animals. And so they were shot. And when those lionesses were shot, they found that they were lactating. So in other words, not only did those lionesses die as a result of the male dying, but also the cubs will have starved to death as well. And this is a recurring situation. It's, it's like a tsunami. You kill one animal, it affects the whole population. This is kind of difficult for me to hear. I'm just really, I'm really sensitive. I, I don't know why, but I think it's important well, to human. get this information you know, out. But this, but this is the thing. And I, I sometimes talk to people about it and we're all left with the conclusion that trophy hunters must come from another planet. They must be a totally different race to the human race because their morality or the lack of it, their lack of empathy is so completely alien to normal societal behavior to normal human reactions 
you know, you and I sort of look at this and think, well, this is absolutely horrific. I mean, and you do all of that for your kicks because that's all trophy hunting is. This is killing a sentient live animal purely for pleasure, for entertainment. In what world do we consider that to be acceptable? My neighbor next door has got a lovely cat called Oscar, beautiful cat. If I was to go next door with a bow and arrow and shoot that cat, right? I would have the police on my door. <laughs> my name would be mud. I'd probably be dragged through the streets. And frankly, rightly so, I'd go to jail. And rightly so. And yet it is both perfectly legal and deemed honorable by the trophy hunting community to shoot an African wildcat or a European wildcat or you know, a mountain lion or a bobcat or, you know, creatures which in many cases are, and certainly in the case of the wildcat, genetically essentially the same. We're talking about identical species. And yet for shooting an African or a European wildcat, you can get a prize, you can get a plaque. <laughs> and this is why, you know, because Safari Club International, for example, one of its many, 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 and it has dozens of award schemes is something called the Cats of the World. And basically you have to shoot five different types of cat species and you've got a nice menu to choose from so you can shoot a bobcat you can shoot a canadian lynx you can shoot a mountain lion you can shoot a lion a leopard a cheetah you know there's fewer than seven thousand cheetahs left in the world they've disappeared from 98 percent of their territory in the last few years they're on the very brink of extinction yet it is still perfectly legal to go and shoot a cheetah just for fun some of these animals have to be on the endangered species list. They are. How, how does, how do trophy hunters usurp that? It's the laws, the international laws on this are, are, are kind of crazy. So we have CITES, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species and Fauna and Flora, it's full name, CITES. And that is supposed to protect endangered wildlife from trade. So basically, killing, taking an animal, taking it back home and all the rest of it. That's all very well. There's a slight problem though. There's a loophole. There's an exemption which says, well, technically when you shoot an elephant or a lion or a cheetah or whatever it is, um, that's not commercial trade. We consider that to be a, a personal or household effect. These are the words that are used. That's the, the language that's in there. And therefore, you're right. All you need to do, get a permit, signing it off and go ahead, go and shoot them. So, you know, CITES has got, well, thousands of species of both, you know, plants and, and wildlife that are considered to be in danger of going extinct. And yet you can shoot them all, even the ones that they have a different system of classification. You've got Appendix 1, you've got Appendix 2, Appendix 3 and so on. The Appendix 1 are the really endangered ones, those that are considered to be, you know, most likely to go extinct. Cheetahs are on Appendix 1. Doesn't matter you can still go and shoot a cheetah. You can still go and shoot a polar bear. We know that polar bears are threatened by climate change. There's around 20, 22,000 polar bears left at the moment in the world. And we know that they already face this threat. And there's all sorts of discussions and talks and agreements and negotiations to try to curb these threats. And yet at the same time, it's perfectly legal for you or I or anyone to pick up a gun, fly to Canada and shoot a polar bear just for fun. And of course, one of the things that happens is that the illegal trade in wildlife benefits. It manages to use these loopholes. So polar bears being an example, but actually black bears, brown bears are an even better example. So people who 
like to get hold of gallbladders from bears because they're part of Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, so-called, although there's no scientifically proven benefits. But anyway, they are popular. So you can go and shoot a bear in order to acquire its gallbladder for it to enter the market for traditional Chinese medicine. But yeah, then you just fill out a form saying you're a trophy hunter or becomes perfectly legal. And that's what's happened in terms of elephant poaching in a lot of cases, even more so with rhinos. <laughs> There's been some court cases actually, which showed how you know, big time crime syndicates were literally paying uh, Vietnamese and Thai prostitutes and peasants they're giving you $500 to get on a plane, go to South Africa, to shoot a rhino, pretend they're a trophy hunter. Many of them didn't even know how to fire a rifle. They actually had to get the professional hunting guy to take the shot. So they didn't know what they, they turn up in these, you know, sneakers and t-shirts and jeans, hardly hunting equipment. They'd never shot or held a rifle in their lives. But anyway, they were doing what was needed in terms of the international process. They were then claiming, yes, I'm a trophy hunter and get that rhino horn or other body parts back to the smuggler and it go into the Chinese trade. And rhino horns worth hundreds of millions of dollars were smuggled in this way. There was a, uh, some of these crime syndicates have been shut down, but now actually some of these uh, Chinese markets are getting it firsthand, if you like, they're not having to go through a middleman. So right now, at the moment, the biggest trophy hunters in inverted commas of rhinos are the Chinese. They're taking home something like a third of all the rhino trophies, supposedly as hunting. Now, the Chinese don't have any tradition of trophy hunting. And there's so many examples. The Singaporeans, they don't have any tradition of, of trophy hunting. And yet, you, you look at the CITES database, and you've got these incredibly precise numbers of batches of crocodile skins, supposedly going from Africa back to Singapore as hunting trophies. No, they're not. They're going into the crocodile leather business, but they're doing, they're getting around the system of the controls and restrictions and so on by claiming they're trophy hunters. And you can tell that it's, it's complete baloney because you can see the entries. They're like in one year, there's 500 going to this place in Singapore. In another, there's a thousand going to this place, another 2000. And you kind of got to ask the question, wow, these Singaporeans, they love crocodile hunting to the exclusion of all other species because they don't hunt anything else and isn't it incredible that they're able to hunt crocodiles in such extraordinary precise numbers the system is shot to pieces it needs urgent reform one of the arguments i've heard is that trophy hunting is not poaching it's not poaching so but it's the same at the yeah, end of the well, day what happens the yeah. animal is dead its tusks or its horn has been taken in order to benefit a human, whether it's financially through poaching or through pride. And of course, you know, one of the things that psychologists and criminologists are quite fascinated by trophy hunters because their mindset is so different from the rest of society, it would seem, you know, what are the motivations of going out and, and killing an animal? And there's quite a few that have, have come up in the literature. And so one is, um, you know, it's, it's about this lack of empathy and there's a link between or, or you know people who abuse animals and indeed trophy hunters are more likely the data suggests to be involved in things like domestic violence uh, abuse of children um other quite serious crimes and some and they've been actual trophy
tree hunters who were also serial killers and they would treat both the animals and their human victims in exactly the same way there was one famous case of a, a trophy hunter who was a serial killer as well he would capture a female victim put her in the hood of his car you know drive off into the middle of a forest strip her naked and then say run and he would give her like a five minute start and then he would stalk her through the woods with his gun just as he would an animal and then he would catch up shoot the woman and then take bits off her to keep as trophies as souvenirs so it's the exact same behavior addiction is another thing that often come uh, comes across and i've been uh, talking to uh, trophy hunters in fact i went undercover for about a year and, and i was uh, talking to a lot of british trophy hunters and telling them i was uh, one of them and they said some of the most extraordinary things there was one who said look this is just like mainlining on heroin um <laughs> which is extraordinary and 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 uh anyway it, it's you, you when you talk to these people your mind is just blown and you can't think you know have i got anything in common with this person with with this human being but yeah and costly signaling is an expression that uh, that the psychologists use it as well so in other words the trophy hunter is doing this to show off their prowess both in terms of lording it over a, a, a you know a beast of the jungle well then many of these cases and you're talking about you know in antelopes and, and, and pygmy creatures i mean it's ridiculous anyway but they've got this amazing prowess and they sound very proudly over their conquered foe their vanquished foe but also showing off to their peers their financial prowess you know their wealth because going trophy hunting ain't cheap it's expensive especially if you're going out into, into the wild to shoot a lion or you know you got to go out into the field with a professional hunter so you're paying their expenses you're staying at a luxury lodge you've got the flights and then you've got the you know the, the when you get the animal killed you, you know, you've got to skin it you've got to salt it then you've got to prepare it for the taxidermy then you've got to ship it then you, you get your taxidermist to turn it into a mount and then you've got to you know find space in your own home and actually quite often trophy hunters build an entire new building to house their collection there's a spanish trophy hunter at the moment going around trying to find space because uh, he's run out he's killed at least 2000 animals and uh, and he just doesn't have space for all the trophies and some you know some of the <laughs> the numbers that uh, of animals that trophy hunters kill there's another spanish trophy hunter tony sanchez arena he to date has killed 1300 elephants 340 lions I think he's killed 167 leopards, 127 rhinos, or it could be the other way around, and about a thousand buffalo, and lots and lots and lots of other animals. You know, the scale of the slaughter is absolutely insane. And so that kind of, you know, mentioning that it's a, a, like an addiction kind of ring trues, because once you get into it, it's difficult to get out of it. I mean, you kind of have to wonder do these people need punishment or do they need help? They certainly need one of them. To me, it seems like, oh, trophy hunting, once in a lifetime thing, you go over there and you get your big trophy. But it's not it's not like that. No, some of these guys are going two, three times a year, every year, maybe even more in some cases. I mean, the, the, the scale is astonishing. I mean, a trophy hunter is killing an animal every three minutes at the moment. And it's just so widely available and, and, and openly available. I mean, you can go, for example, to a website called bookyourhunts.com. It's like the Amazon of the trophy hunting world. And you can book any species you like. You can go and buy yourself an animal to shoot on a, on a website. 
there's no blocks it's not illegal it's totally above board you can go and do this you can go and check after this program bookyourhunt.com they've got hunts for at least 350 different species at the moment i mean you name it. you want to shoot a raccoon or a squirrel as well as a lion or a camel or a kangaroo or a seal an otter it's there it's openly available and you, you want to shoot a, a beaver a badger a bear a wolf a moose you can you know go w w hunting with a pack of dogs to chase a moose you can get reindeer <laughs> the list just goes on and on i mean it is absolutely astonishing this is the but you know the trophy hunting industry actually works quite hard not to make this widely known you don't sort of see a um, a big lobby presence openly championing trophy hunting even though it's a very big and powerful industry they get these proxies and they create these fake front groups and so on. But, you know, the trophy hunting industry is very powerful. Just Safari Club International alone, which is one of the, the big organizations. I mean, it's spent around $140 million on lobbying in the last few years alone, in the last decade. And, you know, it gets its money from the gun manufacturers, the bullet manufacturers, from big time trophy hunters, people like Steve Chancellor, who's you know one of Donald Trump's big donors and fundraisers also gets a lot of money from the oil industry interesting interestingly and that's because they have the shared interests in other words they both want to open up wildlife and protected areas to exploration in the case of trophy hunters so they can shoot the animals there in the case of the oil and gas industry so that they can explore for oil and, and gas and then they put a lot of that money back into working the political system so safari club international's pack its political action committee is one of the biggest election campaign donors in the US. It's got a bigger pack than you know, big brands like General Motors and Delta and American Express. And that money, of course, buys influence. And you know they're very smart about where they put their money. I mean, they've been putting money in recent years. I know they put it into the campaign coffers of people like Ryan Zinke, who then went on to become the Interior Secretary, whose department is responsible for issuing hunting permits and, and, and import licenses. It went into the campaign coffers of Sonny Perdue, who was the agriculture secretary, who again was responsible for hunting legislation. It went into the campaign coffers of Mitch McDonnell, the Senate leader. It went into the Senate majority leader, it went into the campaign coffers of uh, John Beaner, the House of Reps speaker, and so on and so on and so forth. So, you know, they're, they're, they're very savvy. And then of course they fund these arm's length campaigns one of the most extraordinary, and and, it, it, and it's very relevant, particularly because of what's happening in Britain and elsewhere at the moment. So Safari Club International uh, put a lot of money, I mean, we're talking about a million dollars plus, um, into uh, funding a campaign run by a, a fake conservation group called the Inclusive Conservation Group, which was owned and set up by a major trophy hunter who was also the head of a major trophy hunting lobbying group himself, a guy called John Thodos. And this, that the, the Inclusive Conservation Group, on behalf of Safari Club International, um, it ran what it openly called a misinformation campaign. And the documents are in the public domain, so it's all there. It's all legally, you know, confirmed. And and they they said quite literally, we're going to take the content from Safari Club International's website and put them into the words of an African to make it seem that actually there was a big African campaign wanting you know, rich Westerners to go and shoot animals. And they called this thing, Let Africa Live. So they created this fake organization 
on social media with all these profiles and they created fake um, profiles as well for people to like and share using artificial intelligence technology. I mean, this is a really sophisticated campaign and, and they created all of this content for social media and was sharing it all around. And, and, and it all comes from these documents which talk about misinformation, but they, they were then you know, putting these supposedly African messages out there. Uh, but of course it was all being written by a, a right-wing political consultant down in Arizona. Um, and in, indeed, it all got uh, it exposed. There was a big investigation by the Stanford Observatory, which does a lot of, uh, you know, it's respected for its um, you know, research and investigations and what goes on on social media. Facebook and Twitter ended up kicking these platforms off their platforms altogether. Um, it was in the Washington Post. It was in the and but, you know, what was interesting was they, they direct a lot of these messages at British members of parliament and British government ministers and saying, you know, we Africans don't want you to do this. We Africans, you know, you're being colonialist by trying to dictate to us how we should use our natural resources. Kind of, hey, what? No, <laughs> what the British government and others are saying, we don't want to import hunting trophies into our country. I mean, as a sovereign nation, it's got a right to decide what it does import and doesn't import in the same way that it doesn't allow in ivory or it doesn't rely on certain foodstuffs for whatever reason. Yeah. But, and it's not, it, it's trying to create this, you know, reversing, if you like, the, the the language of actual Africans, who, of course, they believe trophy hunting to be an expression of colonialism. But no, they were turning it all around. It's very Orwellian. It's straight out of 1984. Indeed, it's straight out of the playbook of, of you know, big oil and the tobacco industry, because, of course, they use a lot of the same political consultants, you know, companies like Crossroads Strategies, which represents a lot of the oil industry, the tobacco industry and so on, on Capitol Hill. So they're, they're playing the same playbook. I mean, you might not remember, but, you know, while years back, the tobacco industry first claimed that there was no link between smoking and serious lung disease like lung cancer that there wasn't scientific evidence so try to sow doubt into the minds of the jury you know the public also said oh and doctors recommend x brands you know saying in some way right. that, yeah, yeah it was something endorsed by the medical community therefore a healthy product oil industry used to do the same i mean we know from exxon and others they've denied for so long so long so there's a link between man-made carbon emissions and climate change but also they used to say that actually global warming was a good thing because it was going to green the planet and here we are again it's the same message one there's no link between trophy hunting and the decline of species first of all but also trophy hunting can be good for conservation and of course there's no evidence for it but you know you look at what's happening with wildlife today let's take the example of lions i mean lions are in Deep, deep trouble. 1950s, there's around half a million lions on the planet. By the 1970s, that gone down to 200,000. 1990s, there's 100,000. I was speaking to lion experts a couple of weeks ago. They've been doing the latest survey. They can only confirm the existence of 9,610 lions right now. And yet, they're still being shot. And in fact, the annual quotas that governments set for shooting lions is equivalent to around about a third of the entire male adult lion population each year. <laughs> and, and this is, which doesn't mean necessarily all of those lions are, are shot, but 
there's no way that lions can regenerate or replenish their populations. The numbers are just going down and down. So, I mean, this whole argument that conservation is supported by trophy hunting is complete baloney. Just look at the numbers of what's happening to the species. If it was supposed to be good for conservation, it's not doing a very good job. But it can't. It can't. And mathematically, it's impossible. I mean, let's take the example of Cecil. So when Walter Palmer shot him, he would have paid a trophy fee of let's say around $20,000, half of which supposedly to support conservation, half of which to support um, to support local communities. Now, the actual cost of conserving a lion like Cecil and his habitat is around a million dollars a year. $10,000 doesn't begin to register. Now, what does make a real difference, what can actually help to conserve these animals is photo safaris, because an animal like Cecil he himself can generate around about $100,000 a year through photo safaris. So over the course of a lifespan of, of an average wild lion of around 15 years, so let's say roughly $1.5 million, he's more than paid his way. And that's got to be the way forward. I mean, everywhere you look, photo safaris, the nature tourism industry is so much better for people as well as for wildlife. You know, people are getting better jobs, they're better paid because hunting is seasonal in so many of these places. Here you've got good jobs that pay all year round. There was a study recently that said if South Africa, for example, were to switch wholesale from trophy hunting to nature tourism, 11 times more jobs would be created in poor rural communities and they'd pay better. And that's the evidence. And of course, you, know, you go to Kenya, which banned all trophy hunting in the 70s. And by the way, you know, lion populations, elephant populations, black rhino populations, they're all going down everywhere in Africa, except in Kenya, where trophy hunting is banned. Populations of lions, elephants and rhinos, they're going up. They're going up significantly in Kenya because people aren't shooting them and because they're getting better jobs. They're getting social benefits, which do motivate and incentivize them to want to conserve. Them. You know, the, the, the Maasai people in Kenya no longer kill a lion as part of the warrior ritual. They've dropped that because they've, they've discovered actually there's better benefits for them. So every single child in the Maasai tribe in Kenya now has access to a high school education funded entirely by the photo safari industry and because of the revenues that come from that. And so much more money is also going into conservation. I mean, you compare Kenya with neighboring Tanzania just across the border. It, the, the, the amount of revenue that comes from photo safaris in Kenya equates to about 70 or 80 times as much as is plowed into conservation in Tanzania from trophy hunting. So it's something like $14 per hectare in Kenya and more like eight cents a, a, a hectare in Tanzania. So Tanzania, you know, this is the, the derisory amount that goes into conservation supposedly from trophy hunting, whereas in Kenya, you're getting so much more money. And the whole nature tourism industry in Kenya is now huge. I mean, it's worth about a billion dollars. It's, it's equivalent to about 15% of the country's GDP. Again, compare that with neighboring Tanzania, 26% of Tanzania's land is occupied by hunting estates. They contribute precisely 0.22% to the country's GDP. So nothing. It's such a terrible use of land. It's not generating benefits for local people. It's not helping to protect wildlife. There's lots of information coming in from both sides of this argument. Where can someone go to find the facts? 
like you hard know, data. There, there was a really good study actually published in the US back in 2016, I think it was. And it was by the researchers, the staff of the US House of Reps Committee, of the Natural Resources Committee of the US House of Representatives. And essentially it said, okay, the trophy hunting industry says that trophy hunting brings all of these social and environmental and conservation benefits. Well, let's go and have a look. And it took the the, the pilot, uh, sorry, the, the the flagship projects, the ones that the trophy hunting industry says, look, you see, we have this and it's great and gives money to people and is great for conservation. And it looked at them and there was four main ones that it studied in, in, in depth. And its conclusion was, well, it's, there's no evidence to support the claims. You know, you could in one of the projects perhaps say that there are some benefits, but it's certainly not a logical uh, consequitur, if you like, a sequitur of uh, as a result of trophy hunting being there. So trophy hunting cannot be relied on to support conservation was essentially the, co the, 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 the conclusion of the report. And it said that, you know, the, the claims of its benefits of conservation were much easier to find than the evidence to support it. So these were, you know, this was a, a very thorough and, and measured, you know, it wasn't done by people on this side of the argument or that, they just looked at the evidence. And the evidence was that, well, it, it didn't stack up, the claims weren't there. I would say that's a good place, I think it was called Missing the Mark. Um, and uh, as I say, it was written in 2016, and uh, it was a report for the um, House of Representatives Natural Resources Committee. So in, in very sort of measured political language that researchers, you know, scientists often de don't deal in black and white, but you know, in that sort of you know, shades of gray and we sort of <laughs> balance things up. It's uh, one of the best, um, well, it is the best report that I've seen um, that looks at those claims made by the hunting industry and scrutinizes them to see if they actually stack up. Um, there's also an IUCN scientist who has, has been uh, researching this for some time, called the Dr. Bertrand Chardonnay. Um, and he again has looked into the economics of the hunting industry and photo safaris and looked at, you know, what's the reality behind the claims of both sides of the argument. Um, and, and, you know, he deals in hard statistical evidence, figures, numbers, things that you can't contest. And the, the, the data that he has trawled through and pulled together um, is again, very revealing and shows on the one hand, the paltry contributions generated from the trophy hunting industry versus the very real and tangible consequences of the, the, the photo safari industry. You know, at the end of the day, a species like, like, like lions, if you were going to try and fund conservation through trophy hunting, you're talking about an absolutely enormous number of animals that would have to be killed. So scientists say that in order to protect the lion species, that the cost of that is going to be about a, a billion dollars a year. Well, if you look at the amounts that come from trophy fees, and assuming, which of course doesn't happen, but assuming that every single penny of the trophy fee goes towards conservation, that's, that's meant to go to conservation does actually go there. If that were the case, you'd have to shoot something like 100,000 lions a year, which has got two very obvious problems. One, public opinion ain't gonna su support that. Secondly, that's actually 10 times as many lions as actually there's live in the wild today. Yeah, there's not enough. So it's 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 you know it's a completely illogical argument. You've written a lot. 
four books now about trophy hunting and they're all different. And you also mentioned you went undercover, which obviously takes a lot of dedication. So what first got you into trophy hunting and what then inspired you to go undercover? Well, the, the way I got into trophy hunting was kind of almost by accident. I, I was um, reading some press reports and then something cropped up on Agence France Press. It was a report coming out of Botswana saying that they were going to be bringing back elephant trophy hunting, which made me think, what? <laughs> uh, that means that elephant trophy hunting was happening and what else is happening? So I started looking into it and that's when I, of course, stumble onto the, you know, the, the colossal size of the industry. And it is an industry. It is an industry. And how much was, you know, money was going into it, the very powerful figures involved, um, uh, you know, how many animals were being killed, you know, the species, the fact that you have record books. So, you know, like world record type of thing. So, you know, there's, there's a thing that Safari Club International have, and other hunting groups do as well, which is their record book, which is of all of the biggest animals that have been shot. And it has 899 different categories of species and subspecies that it accepts records in. And so, you know, lions and cheetahs, and, and of course, some species have now gone extinct. <laughs> I mean, you know, th there is very strong evidence that trophy hunting has led to extinctions, both local, but also global. You know, in, in the 19th century, you know, they wiped out the quagga, which was a zebra-like creature that uh, inhabited Africa. They wiped out the blue box, an antelope that lived in South Africa. In very recent times, and I'm talking about the last 30 years, they wiped out the, the uh, scimitar horned oryx, which was a, a type of antelope that lives in Saharan Africa. And you know, other animals, the dorcas gazelle, and you know, adax are right on their very last legs, and, and the dharma gazelle, anyway. Many, many species that, that, that they're right on the brink and trophy hunting has absolutely had a big part to play you know in the 19th century trophy hunters from mainly britain wiped out 20 million animals in one go and of course that will have had an impact on, on, on species anyway so that's how i kind of stumbled onto it and i guess as any sort of curious person you know that journalistic background that i have as well it's kind of what goes on in the minds of these people why are they doing this i mean and, and what's their thinking and uh, and so I, you know, I managed to get the contact details um, of a number of trophy hunters. And so I started talking to them. I said, hey, I'm a trophy hunter and I'm thinking of going on this big, uh, you know, hunting expedition. And, uh, and I'm thinking maybe this animal or so tell me what, what have you done and what would you recommend? And, you know, what was it like when you went? And they just and because they thought I was, you know, one of them, they opened their hearts. And by the way, conservation never came into the conversation not one of them ever said oh and i do this because i just want to help conserve wildlife no they all said about how much fun it was and i have people saying the most crazy things i had to sort of double take did that guy just say i mean there's one guy who said you know we'd go hunting and then in the evening we'd grab a few beers and then we'd go back out and shoot the monkeys out of the trees <laughs> and he's laughing laughing on, as I'm talking to him saying this and there's another you know talk about shooting a wildcat and the one guy he said oh you know he, he shot a jackal a male and then he saw its its mate a few seconds later so he shot that as well and you know the one who was talking about how he shot this dwarf mongoose and that was really funny um you know one uh, they talk about what happens when they shoot them about the, the animals sort of catapulting into the air and they're laughing 
as they're saying this. And I'm just thinking, my goodness, we've actually got quite a serious social problem here because this person feels it is perfectly acceptable a to do these things and b to talk about it in this way and that's when i started then connecting with criminologists and psychologists and i've got a a sort of background in in criminology as well and asking them you know what does this actually mean i mean what what does it say to you and they're saying look this is this is serious we can't just take this as a joke i mean this is no joke what they're talking about and uh, so it was it was being it, it was it certainly wasn't easy because you, you, you're trying, obviously, to relate to these people and and you know, respond to them in the way that they would expect you to respond if you were a trophy hunter, which, of course, is anathema to the way that most people would respond. Most people would think people wouldn't say this kind of thing you know, in normal com- conversation. And, you know, one of the really interesting things was it was like they um, there was a sense of relief that they could finally speak to somebody about their adventures without feeling shameful because they know that in normal society you can't say these things and do these things and certainly not without being shunned no but they can post the photos all over the place it's different i'm sure when you hear the some of the descriptions that i saw on your site terrific uh and 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 you're constantly thinking i i I can't believe I can't believe that pe- people can actually say or th- I mean I've got to rethink the the, the identity of humanity because I I just feel so completely different to this person. But then you know you, you're digging into it and you, you find some of the most barbaric things. That, I mean, you know, the whole of trophy hunting is barbaric, and then you get into the really hardcore. It's kind of like ultra snuff porn, right? So for example, you can go to Texas on what they call these. <laughs> heli bacon holiday so you can go up in a helicopter with a machine gun and you can fly around and shoot away shoot as many pigs wild pigs as you can and you've got these people raging about it. again they're talking about it on the internet you go to these people they have and they call it the hog apocalypse and they have all these crazy names for it uh, you know heli bacon these are the names of some of the companies that operate literally you will go up in a helicopter fly low overlying over these wild pigs and shoot them with a machine gun right and and also you've got these exotic places mainly again in texas where you you know they've got wildlife from all over the world you can go to texas to shoot to shoot a zebra you can go to texas to shoot a kangaroo you can't shoot a kangaroo back in australia but you've got australian hunters coming over to the u.s because you can shoot a kangaroo in the u.s how did that experience change your technique or perspective in a way that's given you an advantage in the fight? That's a good question. I have to think about that. You know, it, it's, it certainly opened my eyes to the depths of depravity that is trophy hunting. You know, I thought it was a very serious problem. It was morally wrong. It was cruel. Um, you know, that it was doing nothing for conservation. But the more I look into it and the more, you know, I read some of their magazines. I read some of, uh, you know, the adverts in these magazines. You know, you go to a magazine and it's got adverts for washing powder or for perfume or whatever. You go to these magazines and they're talking about just how their bullets can really blast an animal to pieces. You know, that kind of talk as if that's something that is normal. And it just makes me think, you know, we actually have a serious social problem on our hands. And we know there is, you know, this evidence that linking this kind of behavior to other 
very serious and violent criminal behavior. You know, when, you know, when the FBI decided to classify things like dogfighting as a grade A felony, they did it in part because it was a gateway to being able to help them catch people involved in other serious crimes. Um, and in fact, I remember talking to uh, a senior official in New York police a few years ago. He would say, look, we look for the dogfighters because when we find them, we know we're going to find serious drugs, hard drugs. We're going to find guns. We're going to, we're going to, you know, we're possibly going to find human trafficking. I remember I went and actually talked to a, a government minister here, and this was again about dogfighting in, in Britain. And, uh, and, and he was, of course, expecting me to sort of give the usual kind of boring animal uh, friendly talk about how this was horrible and so on. And I went and said, look, we're, we're doing an investigation at the moment into dogfighting. The people involved are also involved in radical Islamic groups. And boy, did I get this guy's attention. And, you know, he began to understand that, you know, this was a form of criminality like any other form of very serious criminality. And you do see that. I mean, I was involved in an investigation, which eventually, and it was on the BBC and so on, eventually broke up Europe's largest dogfighting crime syndicate. And they were organizing, uh, you know, dogfights with prize money of like $50,000 a shot. And they were you know, moving animals around and breeding them and all the rest of it. And we eventually broke it up. And, um, and it was that was pretty harrowing. Um, you, you saw a I mean, because obviously we were witnessing what was happening to the dogs. Um, and indeed, I, I got to know some dogs that had been rescued, some that had been uh, used as bait animals. So literally tied down and, uh, you know, the fighting dog would be encouraged, taught how to attack a fellow dog and rip this animal to, to, to pieces. Awful, awful, awful. But, you know, there's no difference between that and trophy hunting. The mentality is the same. It's the complete lack of compassion and empathy for a sentient living creature. It's feeling that somehow we lord it over other creatures, that we have a, a right to do this. And trophy hunters often talk about this as their rights, their right to shoot whatever they want, their freedom to choose whatever they want, wherever they want, whenever they want. And that's why they're campaigning in the US and elsewhere to actually expand the list of species that they can shoot for fun, to expand the areas where they can go and shoot, expand, you know, the days of the week, the calendar, the time of the year that they can go and shoot, even lower the age limits for children to be able to go and shoot. And there's a lot of work going on at the moment by the industry to recruit children. You know, the NRA and other organizations have youth hunting camps where they teach children to shoot and how to kill animals and then they get given a goodie bags at the end of it with guns and knives and the chance to go out on an actual hunt etc etc um and they're teaming up you know safari club international certainly uh, and other groups are teaming up with people like the boy scouts association even the salvation army you know to get young people involved because they know the trophy hunting industry knows it's in danger of dying out because gradually society is waking up and saying whoa this is just wrong you can't do this kind of thing in a modern civilized society you know, this is just plain <laughs> you know it, it's got to be binned into the dustbin of history and um and so they're, they're kind of the the age profile of these trophy hunting organizations it's getting pretty old and so there's smaller and smaller numbers going to their big conventions you know like the safari club international convention each year which is like the big show 
get about a thousand companies there every year that are involved in the trophy hunting industry, organizing, and you can go and buy any animal you like. And in fact, they have these auctions at the convention where companies donate an animal hunt and Safari Club International then auctions that hunt and that money is used for its lobbying campaign. So for example, this year, uh, they were auctioning off polar bears, they were auctioning off leopards, anyway, all sorts of animals just to raise money to fight, for example, what the British government is looking to do, banning imports. And, um, you know, and of course, this is something that's great. You know, there's a number of countries now looking at this. So it's desperately fighting this rear guard and, and is very working very hard to try and engage young people. And so they encourage there's a lot of trophy hunting companies in Africa where, you, you know, you can go as a whole family and shoot a bucket load of animals, 13, 15 animals for the whole family to shoot. Young children are taught how to shoot an animal. Yeah, I've got pictures, I mean, horrific ones of, you know, kids that are eight, nine, younger actually, with a dead monkey that they've shot. <laughs> you know, and by the way, primates are really popular with trophy hunters. And I mean, and that is perhaps, I mean, there's nothing about trophy hunting that isn't shocking, but you know, this is shocking in a different way because primates are so close to us. Um, you know, genetically, we share so much of the same DNA, and yet some of the most popular animals shot by British and American trophy hunters are primates. You know, Shakma baboons, Hamadryas baboons, vervet monkeys. They love vervet monkeys. It's one of the most you know, the tiny little beautiful monkeys. People like to to, to shoot them. Uh, there was there was one British trophy hunter who I spoke to when I was undercover, and he said to me, "I just had this thing. I, I had to go and shoot a baboon. I I." I I was just obsessed by it. I needed to go and do this. And he goes on and on about this obsession. He just needed to feel what it was like to shoot a baboon. And unfortunately, you know, these aren't, you know, when the trophy hunters say these kind of things, they're not exceptional things. They're not outrageous. And generally they talk quite, you know, sensibly. You know, some of the leading figures in the trophy hunting industry who are respected, who, you know, sat, I mean, you know, who are members, for example, of the ill-fated White House Committee, the, the, the so-called International Wildlife uh, Conservation Committee, which was filled with, with trophy hunters. Uh, and, and they create these own fake conservation groups. I mean, there's one called Conservation Force, set up by the president of Safari Club International. It's a guy called John Jackson. Conservation Force isn't a conservation group. It's a lobbying and litigation group on behalf of the trophy hunting industry. It took the state of New Jersey to court when New Jersey tried to ban trophies coming in from its seaports and airports. It took Delta to court when Delta said we're not going to transport black rhino trophies and other endangered trophies. It, it's constantly taking you know, the US government to court, the Fish and Wildlife Service, et cetera, et cetera. It fought a campaign with Safari Club International. It's called the Fighting for Lions campaign. Now you hear that and you think, wow, great. They're gonna try and support you know, lions. No, it was fighting for the rights of trophy hunters to shoot lions. What they wanted to do was there was a lot of talk about lions being classed as endangered by the IUCN on the IUCN's red list, by CITES, as an appendix one species by the US Fish and Wildlife Service in the Endangered Species Act and so on. So they ran this $2 million campaign to stop lions being classed as endangered, even though, as we know, their numbers are just going through the floor. It's just a complete collapse of lion numbers. So the fighting for lions campaign was to try to stop lions from being classed as endangered because then it'd be much harder to legally shoot them for fun. And this is the way, so, and, and John Jackson, 
who heads up this organization. He's one of the world's most prolific lion and elephant hunters. He's written openly about, you know, the, the, his, his delights when he shot a, a lion. He talks, he describes in quite detail, you know, how the lion's head explodes in a cloud of smoke. He says there is nothing more intimate or satisfying in life than an elephant hunt. And he's, you know, he's got his name all over the record books and so on. Now, this is the measure of the guy. And yet he has been allowed to sit on the IUCN Lion Working Group. So this is the committee within the global conservation community, which decides should lions be classed as endangered? What should we be doing? What should we be telling governments to do? What money should be there to conserve lions? And he sits on that committee and various other members of his organization and they're all, you know, record, many of them are record-breaking trophy hunters. You know, they're sitting on official committees within IUCN, within CITES, within the UN. And they're actually insiders within the system. So they're helping to rig the system in their favor, in the trophy hunting industry's favor. And so when you started by asking me, hey, you know, surely these animals are endangered, some of them. How is it legal to shoot them? There's your answer. These people are actually at the heart of the system, making the decisions and ensuring that trophy hunters are literally still being allowed to get away with murder. Reviewing your achievements, uh, it appears you've made a lot of progress just as an individual by increasing awareness. Forgive me for saying this, based on what you've just explained, it sounds like a nearly losing battle. So how do you move forward without feeling defeated? I don't think I'm losing... Uh, fighting a losing battle i think i'm i'm winning but it's slow because i'm starting at the very beginning and the trophy hunting industry has worked very hard to keep this under wraps it, you know it's not something that's talked about generally on the news every day and the first step as you know whether it's policy change or getting you know public reaction is education it's awareness it's telling people what's going on and so the first stage of our campaign is exactly that it's revealing the truth um, it's showing what these people actually think, what they say, what they're doing, the cruelty behind it, the fact that you can win prizes for shooting large numbers of animals or shooting big animals with just a pistol. There's a prize that Safari Club International gives you if you shoot big animals with either a, a you know a longbow or a pistol. I mean, it's crazy. There's so much of this that still isn't known, and so <laughs> we're working very hard to uh, you know get that in. But I, I think we've just made a really important first step which is we've convinced the british government to introduce a bill that's going to ban the trophies of pretty much all species coming back to britain and you know that is so important not just because of the numbers of animals lives that that's going to say but the symbolism of it is enormous because britain was the country that invented modern day trophy hunting you know, it was the country that went and invaded Africa and Asia and India and so on and, and brought these practices in and these, you know, colonial bigwigs, they, they took it up as their sport. And, and, and they also kind of introduced the Americans to it as well, because when Theodore Roosevelt did his big year long journey around Africa and him and his son Kermit, they shot over 500 animals. It was on a trip organized by the British authorities. I mean, Theodore would sit in this, uh, chair that was mounted on the front of a luxury train and he would sit there with his rifle and he'd shoot something and then get the train to stop so that he could get the animal <laughs> but that was with the you know permission of the R british authorities in africa who helped him to do that but yeah so you know britain it, it kind of it introduced the sport it you know expanded it around the world and of course britain still has those very strong 
linguistic and well cultural and, and and historical links with countries like South Africa and other Southern African countries, but also with the States and Canada, New Zealand and Australia, where trophy hunting goes on. So for for Britain to be the first country that says, Do you know what? It's time to stop this. What were we thinking? We, we've got to call an end to this. You know, that sends shockwaves. And that's why the trophy hunting industry is is so scared about what's going in Britain. That's why they're so desperate and running these, you know, false flag campaigns, these fake news disinformation initiatives. Uh, they are desperate to stop what's happening in Britain because they know it's it's going to spread from there. In fact, it already has. About three weeks ago, the parliament in Belgium voted unanimously, and I repeat unanimously, all the parties to ban hunting trophies from coming back to the country. And they are implementing a law that's almost identical to one that was introduced in the Netherlands next door a few years ago that bans most species, not all, but most species. And there's other countries where this is now on the political table. This is being debated in Germany, in Sweden, anyway, in all sorts of countries. And of course, even in the US, you know, there's, there's, you know, there, there's been legislative drafts that have been pulled together, they're going through the House of Representatives, there's people in the Senate who are listening. You know, this is something that could take off. So in many ways for Britain to be the first to say this, it, it's like firing the starting gun which is kind of an inappropriate analogy, but it is. It's about everyone now thinking, yeah, do you know what? We've got to address this. This is something that just it is complete anathema. We cannot call ourselves a decent, modern, civilized society if we think it's okay to kill beautiful, magnificent animals, many of whom are on their very last legs, just for entertainment. And what, what did I not ask you there's probably just one one other thing i please, would please please you know the public's already there ahead of the politicians on this there have been a number of opinion polls in britain in belgium in germany even in the us and pretty much everywhere when you ask people about it about nine out of ten people are saying hey this is wrong this is wrong so even in the states even in germany which also has a very strong hunting culture when you talk to them about trophy hunting and, and even some uh, meat hunters in the US, they will say, no, trophy hunting, that's just wrong. I don't agree with that. I think it's just plain wrong. And, you know, the tide is turning and, and the, the public are already there. So all we're doing really is encouraging the politicians to heed the will of the people. And so, you know, we're telling people, get in touch with your elected representative. Let them know how you feel about this and how strongly you feel about it. Because at the end of the day, you know, they want re-election, they want to stay in their jobs and tell them that your vote matters and that your vote will be decided once you've heard from them what they think and what they're going to do about this, because it's time to act. It's, you know, we're way past talking. You know, the, the US government is saying lions could be extinct in the wild by the year 2050. That, that would be the first extinction of a big cat anywhere on Earth since the saber-toothed tiger died out in prehistoric times. The saber-toothed tiger disappeared in pre-biblical times, and yet we could see the first big cat about to go extinct. And trophy hunting, unfortunately, plays a big part in that story. Eduardo Gonzalez, thank you so much for being with us here on Mojo Streaming. It's a, truly a pleasure to have had the opportunity to speak with you today. And we do encourage folks to check out some of Eduardo's work 
He again has four books available. You can head to his website. And of course, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Mojo Streaming to see more videos like this one. Thanks so much.